you have to come in and look at the full scope of the government's picture, of the citizen's picture, of everyone's picture, because you're not going to get anyone to listen to anything you have to say until you understand where they're coming from, because the best deals that are going to be made are not comfortable for you or them. And just walking into the room and being like, I demand this, I demand this, no compromise, we're not going to end up anywhere useful for anyone. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hello and welcome back to the To Be Blunt podcast. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, cannabis business owner and brand marketer. And to kick off today's episode, I wanted to bring you up to speed on some cannabis news that I think you should be tuned into. First up, all the way from Europe, Germany is expected to introduce a bill in the coming weeks, which if passed would greenlight the consumption and sale of cannabis in Europe's largest economy. If you remember, I was in Germany late last year as a part of a Stores and Bickle tour, and it was pretty remarkable and wild to see how accessible cannabis was from a medical perspective, but this certainly would open up recreation in the country. Health Minister Karl Lauterbach said last week that his plans received very good feedback from the European Commission. And under the plans, cannabis would no longer be classified as a narcotic, and citizens over 18 would be allowed to carry up to 30 grams of the drug for personal use. Consumers would also be free to grow up to three plants at homes, and licensed stores and pharmacies would be able to sell cannabis products. In a fast follow, the city of Zurich, Switzerland, is set to legalize consumption and sale of cannabis in a trial scheme. As part of a three and a half year scientific study starting this summer, 2,100 residents of Switzerland's biggest city will be able to buy regulated doses of cannabis for personal use if they agree to answer a questionnaire every six months on their consumption habits and health. That's pretty fascinating to me. Switzerland and Germany do butt up against each other. So that might be a quick domino effect, introducing cannabis to other countries that might jump on board with this mentality. But I think the biggest thing will be to see how they roll it out, right? What does the program look like? What do brands look like? How is it distributed? What are the licensing structures, et cetera? So certainly more to come. Back in the States, I know we're still dealing with banking issues as an industry, and this piece of news comes on the Banking Act. The chairman of a key Senate committee says lawmakers need to act on marijuana banking legislation this year, and his Republican counterpart on the panel agrees that the issue will come to a conclusion likely in this Congress. Fingers crossed, right? Senate Banking Committee Chairman Sherrod Brown also reiterated that leadership was prepared to, quote, move on the cannabis reform just before the collapse of a bank this month, which distracted members. And he disclosed that, quote, the White House wants this fixed as far as he's been told. I know I'm not holding my breath on that getting concluded this year, but certainly banking is a huge challenge for so many reasons for so many operators that doesn't just impact marijuana, it impacts hemp as well. And so it would certainly be nice to have some federal guidelines on marijuana banking, certainly more to come as that progresses through Congress. Now on to today's guest, I am joined by Aaron Richard, a cannabis content creator, co-founder of legendary cannabis video platform WeedTube, and currently sits as the founder of Cirrus Social Club, an innovative space to celebrate and socialize over the wonders of cannabis which is set to open its doors in summer of 2023. I love and respect Aaron for many reasons, but mostly for his professionalism and dedication to helping others experience the best that cannabis has to offer. In this episode, you'll get a small peek into how Aaron approaches content, as well as how he infuses everything he does with hospitality. I've known Aaron for a few years, but we finally got to meet in real life in Vegas during last year's MJ Biz Conference, where he hosted a mock Cirrus Social Club event. 
As someone who has consumed a lot of cannabis, Erin completely elevated that experience for me and made a whole production out of it. From every single detail from the decor to the smoking devices he uses, it was certainly a sweet taste of what's to come for Aaron and Team Cirrus. We dive into the recent announcement that WeedTube is officially closing their doors and what that means for cannabis content creators on mainstream platforms navigating censorship. I also inquire what his go-to gear is for shooting content because, of course, I'm super curious how he executes and captures every detail. And then we end digging into Cirrus, how it came to be, what it's been like navigating a hospitality license in not only Colorado, but Nevada as well, as Aaron has a global dreams of bringing Cirrus to passionate consumers. I certainly learned so much from this conversation and know you will too. So please join me by lighting one up and let's welcome Aaron to the show. Hi there. My name is Aaron Richard. I am a Colorado native and cannabis lover and consumer and business owner. I got my start in the cannabis industry nearly a decade ago when I started a channel on YouTube where I was known as the gay stoner. Grew that channel to 190,000 subscribers in a year, educating people about cannabis and sometimes smoking lots of it, if I'm being quite honest with you. I was deleted from the platform YouTube in February of 2018, along with hundreds of other cannabis content creators during a time that we know as the cannabis purge when YouTube was just getting rid of all kinds of content like that off of the platform. And at the time, I was lucky enough to be friends with and to be managing some of the other YouTubers who were deleted. So a large group of us got together and co-founded WeedTube.com, which then went on to be the world's largest cannabis social media platform in the world, had over 6 million unique users and a million app downloads. And that was a wonderful, beautiful stretch that just recently closed its doors as other social media platforms have been a little more lenient. Um, and so we did Sunset We Too, and we sent all the love to her and hope that that community has a place to gather in the future, which is kind of what I'm building now which is Cirrus Social Club, which is the first of its kind high-end cannabis lounge. It's Our slogan is Cirrus, a first-class sesh experience. Our first location is opening in Denver. It's going to be a Colorado company for sure that will go global. And we're opening on August 1st, 2023. We're about to start construction here in the next couple of weeks. Very excited. And we're also spearheading trying to get a partnership on a license in Las Vegas for their recent allotment of consumption lounges as well. And yeah, that's my journey prior to cannabis as well. I worked in fine dining in New York City and was a customer service manager for a very well-known across the world uh, steakhouse brand that here in Colorado. And I won customer service manager of the year twice in a row of their whole worldwide portfolio. So long history in F&B as well. Yes. Hospitality is your second language, it seems, as is cannabis, which just amazing from a personal level getting to obviously watch you online, which I feel is sometimes a little creepy and weird when people are like, oh, I know you from social media. <laughs> but I'm sure you get it a lot and have probably felt endeared by the amazing amount of people you've been able to impact through your content. Very educational, also very hilarious and really real, which is, I think, what people really have gravitated towards with you in particular. And so obviously being a content creator, taking that experience, then launching your own platform. I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about WeedTube, but just to kind of, you know, set the stage for the audience. That was originally how I was introduced to you. I had Ariana on the show. We were talking about WeTube specifically censorship. I know you alluded to that a little bit in your introduction, just of how some of these newer social media platforms, I shouldn't say newer, that was the wrong way of phrasing it. These um, mainstream social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, of course, have now created, I guess, a little bit of a buffer space for cannabis. I know we're both kind of like for people not watching the visual, they're like, yeah, we're kind of like on the tip. We're both kind of like cringing. We're like, like, sort of, there's kind of We're still getting, you know, weird messages. I just got one from Facebook a couple of weeks ago that was like, you violate our policy. I'm like, I sell CBD. This is a CBD Facebook page. Like, what the fuck, Facebook? But I digress, as you know. So kind of just like walk us through, you know, I'm just curious what, was it like building a platform? I think so many people in cannabis just, again, we want to be where everybody else is. But at the same time, we are a massive industry. I mean, you were just sharing numbers and stats of how many people were actually on WeedTube. I think that's an amazing feat that didn't come easily, right? And so I just kind of the question really is, 
Because I think people who are listening, they struggle with that too. Well, should I go on mainstream or should I start my own thing? And I've certainly seen other cannabis-specific apps and platforms being created, some certainly not as successful as WeedTube was. It's just like, was it the timing of when you created it that you felt that it got a lot more you know, traction versus now if someone was creating a cannabis-specific platform? I'm just curious, looking back and now kind of looking to the present, what was it like and would you do it again in today's climate to create something specifically for cannabis content yeah, creators? Wonderful question. Um, also at the time in 2018 that we're looking back, there was the broader focus of everyone's attention in general on social media was on YouTube. Like the majority of people, like Instagram was cool. We were on Instagram, but like culturally as a society, like YouTube was the one. Everybody was really in love with YouTube. This was also at the time when we're talking about mainstream YouTubers outside of cannabis that had just huge followings, people who today are, with all due love and respect to them, completely irrelevant. Like it was a different time of YouTube. And at this time in the cannabis community, um, which, you know, back on YouTube, we called it WeedTube. All of us who made weed videos, we called YouTube WeedTube. So all of us WeedTubers were also very well connected. Like there was a large network of all of us who knew each other, who collaborated, who made content together who enjoyed being in each other's presence. And when we all got deleted, it was that strength of community that we had between us that helped us bring WeedTube to life because our followers supported it. They, you know, I couldn't have done it by myself. Magdizzle420, another one of my co-founders, she could not have done it by herself. Any of the other co-founders, nobody could have done it by themselves, but we could all have done it together. In, in, in the question of could it be done today, I think that there is a larger disconnect in cannabis influencers nowadays. And I'm also not saying that this is a bad thing either. And I'm saying this without judgment of either direction. But today, people are more focused on their content and, you know, running their brand. And and Instagram is also probably like the main spot, which is such a different thing than long form content. You know, back in the day, you would come on YouTube, watch two creators have an hour long sesh, get to know them and enjoy them. There's no space for that on Instagram. That's not what it is. And it's hard to do a lot of collaborative things on Instagram. So do I think it could be done again today? I don't think that there's a connection between people with followings enough to pull it off. That's a fair is, statement. That's what I would say. And it's not a good or a bad thing. I, I am neutral on that subject, but I think that that's the case of where things are now. Yeah, no, it's a fair point. I guess for me, I've certainly been, you know, outreached by certain and I don't need not throwing shade by any means, just trying to connect some Throw dots shade, and, Shada. Throw shade. Well, the people are coming out with these platforms. They're like, come over here, girl, come make content over here. And I'm like, why the fuck would I go make content over there? Like, why the would reason, I do that? The reason that those don't work either, because you did say, you know, there's been a lot of other platforms that claim to be social media platforms for for cannabis and, you know, whether it's professional networking platforms, right. whether it's social media platforms. And, and some of these pe platforms claim like we're the largest cannabis social media network. But if you look at the numbers, no one even came close to WeedTube. But the difference between WeedTube and all of these other platforms is, in my opinion, there's two levels. Number one, they're these are business people who are like, I have an idea for a business that can make money. Nothing wrong with that. And they're like, I'm going to create this platform that's going to get a bunch of people. Then there's WeedTube, which was, hey, we're 20 plus creators who no longer have a home for our content. We have followers and they want to go somewhere. So let's get together and do this. Like, you know, the investor, my business partner in WeedTube says all the, the since we sunset it and, you know, took care of all the employees and, you know, shut every, and are shutting everything down. He said, you know, we never thought WeedTube was going to make a bunch of money, but we knew that it was a resource and that maybe one day it would be, you know, financially successful. Unfortunately, it wasn't. And that's, you know, just the reality of it. But I am so fulfilled and rewarded in so many ways from everything else that came of WeedTube. So I'm okay with that. But I think that the main difference is like business people who are like, I'm going to start this app. And now how do I market it and get it in front of creators? Whereas we're like, hey, we literally have this giant market and know where to go. So that was the difference. No, that's a very clear line, like you're stating, right? Because it's people who want to pander to creators versus like actually being a creator and having your own following and, and really just like looking to park it somewhere. And so, it's so interesting too. I would just love to yeah. add to that. I'm so sorry, but 
Please. It's interesting because a lot of these other platforms are like built on white labeled social media platforms. So someone out there has created the app existing infrastructure for, for a social media platform. And you, as the owner of the business, go and pay them to put your logos on it and run a new branch of that social media. Okay. So you don't develop anything. The other thing we YouTube did that was really cute, cute and cool was that we literally developed all the technology. So we owned everything. There was no white labeling. It was down to the code and everything like originally ours. And I am so proud of the fact that we did that. I can attest to the quality that WeedTube was, is, will remain forever. You know, I think it's always so interesting just looking at content in general. And obviously it's evolved over the years. Like you're highlighting that period of time, 2018 was really YouTube heavy. Now we're very Instagram heavy and it is a completely different platform. And now you're obviously even seeing TikTok, which to me is a whole foreign language. <laughs> and me I can't too. even like anticipate what the next one is. And so I'm a little bit like, okay, come on. I just really hope Instagram works out. Also knowing that these platforms, while they seem really big and really unshakable, obviously MySpace had its day. I think Facebook is having its time, but then they've got the Instagram thing. So yeah. it's just, you know, something I think for creators to pay attention to while also acknowledging you kind of want to be where the people are, which are these mainstream platforms. But also, I wouldn't say discredit some of these newer cannabis-specific spaces. It's just I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket. You want to still play with censorship, unfortunately. Have to. Kind of turning to that, you are now back on YouTube, correct? Dipping a toe in. And honestly, Shade, I'll be honest with you. It is really... It is really my my hardest battle in life right now is is this YouTube situation. Like five-year plan, I know exactly what I'm doing with Cirrus. Five-year plan, I know exactly what I'm doing with Watch and Sesh, which is my show, which can't wait to have you on as a guest. But when I think about YouTube content and other video, I'm just having a hard time like understanding where that world fits with this new world that I'm mm. creating with Cirrus. So it's a big struggle, but I think, you know, we, we've just decided like three pillars, like, is it, is there a human connection is very important to me. Like our two people or I, at least with the camera connecting on something deeper than like surface level. Secondarily, like, can we make it look good? Can it match the quality? Like it needs to look, it's got to have something good. You know, I'm, we're building a $3 million lounge in Colorado. Like the videos need to look good too. You know Absolutely. what I mean? So it's it's just I am struggling with the YouTube journey. But yes, I am back on YouTube. Well, it looks visually stunning. I mean, I love the way that you think through how to present your content, present yourself, obviously present Cirrus. Yes, we are socially connected. So I get to see all the little behind the scenes details of picking out colors or certain, you know, paraphernalia that you're going to be introducing into Cirrus. And, and obviously the watch and sesh just like stage presence. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it looks good, but I know it's also a lot to be orchestrating. And so I can understand that middle ground of trying to do it all while also staying relevant, making sure you're, you know, tending to, I mean, I guess you love flowers, right? So tending to all your different gardens, right? Yeah. It's like you, you got to give love everywhere. And so I think you're doing a great job. I was just curious, you know, going back to YouTube, what has it been? And are you on other platforms with this video content, kind of just like a quick pulse of what's it like being back on YouTube? Have you noticed any censorship lately? Is it always just kind of in the background? Like, what's that like? And then where else do you park the, these videos? I don't have the, the new channel is so new. It just hit a thousand subscribers after like a couple weeks <clears throat> and not trying not to do too much heavy promotion of it. And just because I'm not, you know, I'm still at a place where like I want to be uploading content to that YouTube channel where I'm like, I'm so proud of this video that I'm like blinded. But I'm also at the level of we got to start. I have to put things out if I want to do it. So let's start here and let's like get to where I want to be. And I, for example, we just recently filmed something that I'm like, OK, that's great. I cannot wait to put this out to the world. It's hard to tell if we're up against censorship yet at the size channel I am. Mm -hmm. But it's been a month and I've gotten over a million impressions on shorts. Okay. So shorts is so new to me. Yeah. It's the like shorts is, is essentially like one a minute or less story or a reel on Instagram or TikTok. Yes. More like a reel. And it's, it's vertical, right? It is vertical. And at first I didn't understand it at all. And now as I've been kind of getting back more into YouTube, I'm like, oh, okay, like I can get lost in shorts for a little while. Sure. But it's broader content. It's not as like my TikTok feed. If you, I think that the best way to get inside someone else's mind and to understand someone is to scroll through their 
TikTok for you page. Like if I scrolled to your for you page, I would probably learn so much about you, Shada. I probably if you use TikTok a lot, I would if yeah. you if you scroll through mine, you're gonna be like, wow, Aaron is number one, very gay. <laughs> number two has a really like always sunny in Philadelphia sense of humor, like inappropriate sense of humor that maybe the world doesn't always see about us. But like TikTok, you know, is building a feed curated to every yeah. little movement we make. Even if you hover over a video for one extra play, TikTok's like, Shada like that. Shada like that for some reason. And we're going to keep pushing that this way. Like you want to talk algorithms, TikToks are insane. YouTube shorts are just more broad. It's okay. just, you know, way more broad. It's not super tailored to you. It's like just random stuff about the world in general. Final question on content, just because I'm curious now, gear, like how do you execute all of this? I know you have teams and others, people who support you. Do you do most of your content as Aaron, like individually, or is there always someone who's shooting you? Are you using your iPhone or a smartphone? Are you using something more like a like a Sony camera? Is there extensions of mics? Is there, you know, headphones being used? Like what's kind of the smallest way that you execute content and then like the grandiose way that you execute content? Or is it always like some some sort of a production? Well, with Watch and Sesh, it's definitely a bit of a production. It's like Netflix quality 4K cameras, three of them, a wide shot and one on each guest. And where we're actually right now, very excitingly, the interior designer that we're working with on Cirrus, Miranda Cullen from Inside Stories, who, by the way, is my absolute idol. Shouts out Miranda Cullen. She is like peak performance of human being. I adore her. Amazing. So she's designing. I'm designing Cirrus. I'm the lead interior designer, but she's helping me put all the pieces together. And we're she's helping me build my podcast room in my new home. So we're developing this room that is just going to be so visually luscious. That's just <sighs> like an orgasm for the eyes while people are just consuming cannabis together and having beautiful conversations. And yeah, we really do put all of the effort into stuff like that into more like remotes of like me going out and doing things. The setup is usually a Canon 90D camera, which is wonderful. It's giant though. So it's, you know, it's not always super easy to like hold out in front of you, but that is what I use with a big old microphone on top. I usually have a cell phone that has a lapel mic plugged into my pocket. So I do usually try to use a lapel mic. And then we have a secondary camera always that is running in 120 frames per second in 4K that is capturing just gorgeous smoke shots that we can slow down, speed up. It's that 4K element of that. And that's pretty much how remotes work. And then for Instagram and other social platforms, I just use my iPhone 100%. My I like I understand what you're saying because I'm in that realm. Like my desk is so messy right now, but I have mm. my camera, my tripod. I have I even bought like a little teleprompter thing because I found when I do talking head videos, especially for our restart YouTube channel from an educational perspective, it's just easier if I read a script. So I found this app. I put my iPhone in there and I can, you know, mirror it up. And I'm like, this is so much. And it gets overwhelming if I don't get in the rhythm of creating the content. It just kind of sits, which is what's happening right now. So sorry to everybody who's going to my restart YouTube. I haven't put a video out in a couple of weeks because it's a lot to make content. And so I just admire your passion and creativity and how you execute. And it's obviously always a learning game. There's always a new gadget or a new way of doing something. But I think the biggest thing is obviously just consistency and putting things out there and just kind of seeing what resonates, what sticks. But you, you've been, you're professional. You've been doing this for a long time. So I'm sure there's a lot of like second nature of just like, oh, done. We need these three cameras, like no questions asked. And and I would say, yeah, that's, that's definitely true. I, I kind of, have this thing of like, I don't need to be making content. I know Sirius is going to be great and people could never know me in any other light and I would be totally fine with that. My thing is I want to. I mm. really love making content. It's very fun for me. I need a creative outlet. It's like Ariana, who is, you know, my right hand in business and everything that you were talking about earlier. She, when we were having a meeting about it the other day and trying to figure out what direction to go with this YouTube channel, my personal content, a lot of the newer team members are like saying things and not really understanding. And Ariana had to be like, just so everyone understands, the the vlog and content creation like that fills Aaron's cup. Mm -hmm. So if if it's not filling Aaron's cup and it's not like a creative journey Aaron wants to go on, it's not worth doing. And 100%. I think that that's really what it is for me. Like, I think a lot of people have to do content for like a marketing aspect. And my brain almost does not work that way. Like I was the number one affiliate seller for Hippie Butler in the whole time of their company's existence for like two whole years, just top earner. And they were paying YouTubers with millions of subscribers and I was their top affiliate. And I just had so much fun making that content. And I never went into it being like, how am I going to sell 
the most stuff. I was always just like, how am I going to, I want to have fun. If I'm not having fun, I don't want to do it. And I, I do still very much approach everything in that way. Yeah. So I think it really does have to come from that perspective. And I guess like the final note I'll share with that and then transition to serious stuff is, you know, I will never put myself in the same realm as you from a content perspective, but I do love content. So whether I'm making long form or short form, I feel like I've been making content for so long and people always kind of look at me and they're like, when do you sleep? I'm like, I, I don't, but it's not that I yeah. don't, it's that I love making content. And so you really have to love doing it. And I think the other side of that coin for people listening who maybe don't think that way or breathe or eat that way is that's okay if that's not you. You can hire people. You should hire people if that's not your strong suit. And I think content is just such a, it's non-negotiable right now. You can't not have It is content. non-negotiable. It is non-negotiable. And so I just, I see people are probably listening to this and they're like, well, I'm not Aaron and I'm not Shaden. I'm not, you know, investing in all these cameras. And I don't have a team who can record me. And I don't understand the difference between shorts and YouTube long form and Instagram and TikTok and blah, blah, blah. And again, I think the point is we don't necessarily understand it fully either, but it's, more or less of just like how we are oriented and wired and really have a passion for being in front of the camera as well, which is okay if that's not you. So I just wanted to say that to you and to the listeners out there, it's okay if it's not you, you're probably great yeah. at something else like finances, which I don't Can't do. love. Can't do. To and I, and I, would, I would also add to that, like in terms of content that I am making and that I love making, I would say when, when Cirrus opens, I'm not, I may overall <clears throat> creative direct some content direction for that brand. But more than likely, I will hire professionals to make content for Cirrus because the content that I'm making suits me and is good for me. And Watch and Sesh is definitely extension of Cirrus. I mean, if, if the plans work out for Watch and Sesh the way that I wanted to, it's certainly an extension of marketing for Cirrus that I really look forward to. But like as far as marketing Cirrus online through content, I there are people who will do it better than me. So I will be outsourcing that. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also gets down to personal branding versus like business branding. And I'm sure, like you said, you want Cirrus to be global. And if yep. it's just you making all the content explicitly, that doesn't really allow you to take a vacation or relax or just take like, you know, a moment off of the microphone or off the camera. So I work every day as the founder of Cirrus and and I enjoy my job so much and I just don't see content as a job. It's like a separate area yes. of my life entirely. Yes. It's like the third arm that just holds the camera and it's just always recording something. Yep. I love it. I can so appreciate and relate to that. Okay. So now getting into Cirrus, you are a Colorado native. You have literally watched the rise, the, I'm, I'm going to kind of call it out a little bit of like stabilization of the Colorado cannabis market. I have family in Colorado. My listeners know Colorado is my second home. And so I know more or less a lot more about Colorado than I would say any other cannabis market. Okay. And Recently, within the last year, Colorado decided to officially offer and open up hospitality licenses. And some of my listeners might know or might be wondering, what do you mean? What's a hospitality license? Like, what does that look like? And so I want to obviously get your take on this from like being boots on the ground, not just like as a resident, but as someone now who's embarking in this whole journey of operating a consumption and hospitality lounge in the state of Colorado. But kind of, you know, from an outsider looking in, growing up, going to Colorado, we became legal. And I just assumed that meant I could consume anywhere, right? Like in my hotel room, duh, on the hike when I'm in Rocky Mountain National Park, duh. Obviously, there's some legalities in terms of being in government property, et cetera, things like that. But I think the general consensus was consumers just didn't really know, especially tourists, knowing how big tourism was for Colorado from a cannabis perspective, they really didn't understand that was technically illegal for them to be consuming unless they were in a private residence. And so I know over the years, there had been some interesting membership type lounges, essentially kind of gifting economy where it's, hey, you're going to come in for this purpose, but then you're going to also be able to smoke your cannabis under the guise of private property, et cetera. And so being the leader in cannabis that Colorado is, they, to, in, in my opinion, I know California has been dealing with a couple of hospitality licenses, kind of like similar, maybe even like recursive. And I think Colorado. that's West Hollywood. I think that's West Hollywood yes. specifically. Yeah. Yes. But Colorado is kind of the biggest state forward saying, hey, we're going to actually put this into legislation. We are going to issue out licenses. And so that's where I want to kind of introduce you into this process. You've got a license. You've secured a building. You are opening Cirrus, like you said. What has that journey been like? What kind of led you to decide to embark on this? I think I'm a little bit curious to knowing how licensure works. Was it 
oh, I have an idea. I'm going to get a hospitality license. I'm going to find a building and we're going to execute this. Like, was there any, oh, there's only 10 licenses and I've got to fight, you know, the 45 people who also want to get a hospitality license. Is it restricted based on geographical locations? Certain municipalities are pro hospitality licenses. Some are anti. I mean, I know again, a little bit about Colorado. It is kind of like a city by city, Colorado Springs being a very notorious town for being slow to the punch when it comes to adopting cannabis recreationally. Very conservative Colorado Springs, wildly conservative. Yeah. Yes. So kind of with that understanding, how do you, how do you get into that market? How are you like, okay, I'm going to get a hospitality license. What does that look like? And how easy has it been for you to navigate that? Yeah. When Colorado made legalization for this marijuana hospitality license, which by the way, I love that Colorado decided to call it hospitality in any capacity. Wish it was cannabis, not marijuana, because of the implication of them using that word is not great. Yes. But they don't use it with love like we do. You know, they yeah. they use the word marijuana with a heavy weight attached to it. But I'm so glad we call it hospitality because other places like Las Vegas just call it cannabis lounge licenses. And I'm like, it's hospitality. It really is hospitality. As soon as they legalized, I knew I wanted to do something with it. I knew that I had always wanted to do something in terms of what I've always been good at, which is hospitality and mixing that with cannabis. And then also mixing that with my very long history of teaching millions of people on YouTube how to smoke weed. I literally was the number one result on Google when you Googled how to smoke weed for a long time. And I know how to get people high for the first time safely. And I know how to do it in a way that that I don't piss stoners off, that stoners come in and say, you don't do it like that. You got to do it like this because I've heard it all. So I know how to get people high and make sure that they have a great time no matter what end of the spectrum they're on. When when the ability to get these licenses was first announced, I didn't exactly have a concept. I kind of was just like, okay, step by step, day by day, go get approval to be able to get a license. Got that approval. Then you have to find a building first, which is very interesting. In Denver, you you can't get a license until you have a building. So you talk to the MED, who's Colorado's regulatory authority on the state's regulatory authority on cannabis. And they're like, you know, literally sending me an email that's like, with the abundance of commercial property, you know, this should not be an issue for you to find a property and then apply for your license. Well, yes, and we do have an abundance of commercial property in Colorado, but the commercial properties that fit into not being a thousand feet from anyone breathing as the rules state, which is a joke, but really there are a lot of things we have to be not within a thousand feet from. You can't work with a landlord that has a federal loan on their property because no federal loans can be associated with any kind of cannabis businesses. Um, And then there's several other restrictions. I literally saw all three possible properties that would be available in the city of Denver to be a business like this. One of them was a strip club that had a fire in it. So it was like a burned out hole that needed to be completely redone. One of them was a really nice office building that used to be like the Burton Snowboard Factory slash office. And it was very cool, would have needed very minimal stuff, but it was kind of out of the way. And then the third one was the one that I ended up getting. The first time I saw it was like a 1939, built in 1939, renovated most recently in the 80s to be a Taekwondo studio. And I remember going in and being like, this will never, this is not going to work. This is not going to work at all. Like, why is my realtor showing me this? And then the landlord, the owner of the building got up on a ladder and popped out the ceiling tile. And I then saw the big room had this giant barrel ceiling. And he's like, no, this building was built in 1939. It's got all this classical architecture underneath everything. And I was like, oh, I'm sold. This is this is the one just seeing this big, beautiful barrel ceiling up there with this original wood that looks so good. I was like, sold. This is the one. So we sign a lease. Then you go through the process of applying for your license with the state and the city. Um, And it's been a nightmare. We have our provisional license from the state. We have our recommendation for approval from the city. But honestly, Shada, in the next week to two weeks, we should finally be hearing back from Denver Excess and Licensing that we're good to go with like construction and moving forward. And then they still have to come inspect it before you can actually open and everything. So, I mean, it's a lot. Quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. 
just a little bit of things in your way that you have to knock down, but you're very capable of continuing to do that. I think, yeah, when I was talking to Chris with the 420 Hotel and Property, which is also in Colorado, this was right when I think it was around the time when Colorado was a maybe the first round of awarding licenses. I'll have to go back and listen, but I mentioned it for the listeners if you're like curious to also hear a little bit more in depth of kind of like that process. But I remember him expressing there was some concerns around his property because of alcohol can't also be sold in the same property and as a hotel wanting to have a bar, like little details of the direction that, you know, the building was facing, if it was facing a school and any sort of, you know, corner of it, that wouldn't be approved. And so there's certain, I think, rightful restrictions, but then also some kind of very outlandish things that the state has kind of pulled out of thin air. And so I know that you've been sharing at least some of these idiocracies when it comes to how specifically maybe the state of Colorado or maybe even how the city of Las Vegas has been navigating some of these things. What I'll kind of remind for the listeners, it's not been done before, right? And so the city's If you can even just imagine from a cannabis perspective, they don't really know how to regulate cannabis in general. I think you see that from these poor policies from even states like California with Prop 64. It's just like the ongoing unfortunate shithole reality that that state is navigating through. But these are states like Colorado that have been in the industry for a very long time. And now you're having this introduction of hospitality, consumption on property. One of the things I saw you promoting maybe promoting is not the right word, but sharing about, which is a challenge, is the air quality, air purification. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, what other kind of things has the city or the state been like, we need to make sure this is taken care of. And you're like, well, there's no, like, where are we pulling that documentation from that that's what needs to be done in this situation? So obviously looking back on tobacco smoking, which is I think some of the stuff you were sharing about the quality that the air needed to be for smoke in general, but is tobacco smoke the same thing as cannabis smoke? Is it as harmful? What is secondhand smoke? I obviously don't know nearly enough in general, let alone now navigating it against a state's regulation. And so I'm just curious from your perspective, what it's been like working? I mean, are you working with the state to kind of say, hey, you're asking me this, but where's the standard that that is based upon? And is that the right standard that we as a new subset of the industry should actually be just accepting or or can we help influence better regulation kind of is the question. Such a complex question. I'm going to give you a complex answer. That's great. So top level, like the state that I'm in with Colorado and Denver and Las Vegas and Nevada, I don't want to upset anyone and make my life harder for myself at this point. So that that I will have to say that. If you're listening, any government regulators out there, I'm saying this with love for all of you. Aaron loves you and he respects your rules. Literally. (laughs) Because, and that's the respect of the rules thing is when you go into a room and you know all the different people who are trying to open a business like this up, good thing there's rules. Because not everybody's trying to do what what I want to do, which is like when I'm making the business I want for the target demographic that I want for the for the target consumer and price point that I'm going for, I know what Cirrus is going to look like. And I know that my standards are higher than the government's standards. So I'm like, why are you like, get out of my way. Like, I'm going to do a great job, like get out of my way. But their rules are there for people who will do the absolute bare minimum. And so that is important to recognize. The specific air requirement thing, though, that I do still have an issue with is they're basing it off of the international engineers, ICBM something. Oh, my God. I know so many acronyms for so many things. I'm going to have a freaking master's degree in construction by the end of next year. I tell you what. So so there's this the the, international code for smoking and what a smoke lounge is at DIA. We used to have in Concourse C, the Smoking Bear Smoking Lounge. And it was like a 100 to 200 square foot room where you could smoke cigarettes in between your flights. The requirements are based on that place. So you have 30 people constantly smoking cigarettes nonstop in a room. That's the level of ventilation that's required. Cirrus Social Club has no paper smoking at all. So therefore, cannabis is not, nothing is constantly burning. Things are going out in between. When we've done mock services and trials, we've recorded an average of four hits per person. And that's with people taking more, but most people taking like two or three. So the air is never smoky. The air is always lovely. It's volcano bags and it's bongs and that's it. So it's never too much. It's never too extreme. It's never too strong. And so that makes me want to go to Denver and be like, please don't hold me to this same hurricane level wind gale force air exchange that you're doing this to. And they're like, no, sorry, we're going to. But maybe, maybe 
If another municipality somewhere changes that, maybe we'll change it too. So then you put in a system that does what they're asking you to do, but that can also be scaled back when those rules are changed. Because at the end of the day, what the most expensive thing is like the power that it takes to do it all. So as long as I can scale it back, I'm happy with that. Do I think that there should be better rules? Yes, but also at the same time, Shada, I, when we did the WeedTube app launch, this other company hosted an after party for us in LA in this like probably three, 4,000 square foot, really cool open space. And we packed it and everyone smoking joints. I could barely breathe. So like at the same time, that place had no ventilation and I wish that they had. So it's tricky to be like, let's take away the ventilation because if someone else in Colorado opens a lounge that allows paper, it's a different reality. Like constantly burning things are different than bong rips and volcano bags. Well, I should have to commend you one on your diplomacy, obviously, of how you're handling the situation. I can really admire your position on it because, yes, I truly believe that you are setting a standard and not everybody else is operating the same way you are. And so that is the reality of things, right? And so if the government were to just use you as the model, one, I would hope that they would then expect everybody to rise to the occasion. But the reality is they probably aren't because we know that regulators are very thin and far and few between. And so it's just going to create, in my opinion, ultimately a bad experience for the consumer. I know that's not your outcome, right? You are very considerate of the consumer. You want the experience to be something that's pleasant, delightful, safe, something that people are going to have a good time, enjoy. But I can also appreciate the reality, which is, I think, the hard part of this whole conversation. It hasn't really been done. There isn't a standard. And there have been situations that you've obviously just shared and been personally a part of where it's like, this is what could happen if there isn't any ventilation in in a situation Mm. like this. And so it's just an interesting situation for the city or the state to really be looking at how do we work on this? And so I, I also like that you are doing these mock services. One, just I'm sure that your hospitality background of like, let's do it and make sure that it's perfect from putting things out to how we're interacting with the guests. But also Steps of for, service, make sure every step of service is organized and we're ready to go for opening day. Absolutely. But I'm sure to also it's to have some at least anecdotal data points to be able to take back to the city and the state and say, hey, we tested this this time, this time, this time, this time. And this is the amount that this was coming up. These are the types of products that we're using or the types of paraphernalia that we're using. So that way, like you said, you can at least be some sort of like line in the sand for them to at least hopefully hear you out should they be open to changing their rules at a later date. But yeah, I I appreciate the way that you handle that question. I was just really curious because I think there's not a right or wrong really way to answer it. It just really hasn't been done. And it's not that the state is the bad guy. It's just they're literally doing the best they can with the information that they have. And and there's all types of operators now trying to enter into the market. So and that being said, I do want to say love, love the state of Colorado. Working with them has been great to hold the city of Denver accountable a little bit, though. They are the number like I have done everything to the T what they've asked me to do above and beyond. And they are still the one thing that is in our way for opening. And they don't care. They they absolutely are not you know, I'm like, Denver, I'm trying to make like a tourist attraction. I'm trying to put us back on the map here. And they you guys do out. not care. They could care less. Are they short staffed? Is it because they're regulating other components of the industry and hospitality is so new that it's not maybe their priority? Or are they just blatantly like... No the department way. also deals with like liquor stuff, you sure, know, yeah. so the, the licensing EXL. It's it's hard to say. And, I, and again, I don't want to put it on anyone, but the mentality of the city of Denver employees also, the problem is, is the mentality is, is 100%. This is going to take you a long time and it's yeah. not going to be fun and you need to deal with that. Whereas like, I would just hope that the mentality from a department that's hiring someone specifically to help business owners navigate it and make it easier, like that person's perspective should be like, I can't wait to help you. Not I'm here to be a buffer and to tell you no. Yeah, that's very hard. I can imagine. I mean, just the little experience that we even have with our hemp regulators here in the state and within the city of Austin, they are very similar where it's like, okay, (laughs) I know you don't maybe love your job, but you're in this job and your job is to help me. I'm a license holder. I pay you money to operate legally. The quick story that comes to mind for me is we're, we've been one of the top, like we, we were one of the first license holders for a hemp retail license in Texas. Period. And nobody ever sent me a physical license certificate. I didn't know that was a thing. And then we were applying for something separately and they were like, we need proof of your certificate and your license. And I was like, I, ha- I have that somewhere, I think. 
I logged in and I literally took a PDF screenshot of like my license being active, sent it to them. And they were like, this isn't legit. We need a legit thing. Email the city contact, which normally doesn't respond, but shockingly got a response. It was like, oh yeah, here's here's a PDF copy of your certificate. I'm like, that I never got for five years. I've been a license holder. You never sent this to me. And it's just an oversight. And, and it just, I think, again, shows that these people are not being very unfortunately helpful for the roles and regulations that they are buffering. I like your word buffering. It's like, work yeah. with me. I'm not trying to be rogue and not be a licensed uh, operator. I really want to do things by the book. And it's like something as simple as like sending me my certificate would have been really mm. great that first six months or a year that we were operating. And now it's a five year later oversight. So yay, us. Obviously, it's it's much more dire for you in your current situation where it's like literally preventing you from opening. For us, it's like, do the regulators even come by? I mean, I say yeah. it kind of jokingly, but I've never met a regulator in the last five years that we've been Period. operating in Texas. So it's just, you know, That's the reality. Tough. We had to have a community needs and desires hearing to prove that the community needed and desired our business there. And I think that that's fair. That's fine when you're talking about, you know, like marijuana businesses and making sure that the community there that wants them, I feel like they should have a say. That's totally fair. We had the hearing one person uh, showed up against and they were a resident and they didn't like the idea of more cars in the area. Fair point. Every single other person was 100% for it. We had three business owners in the area testify in front of the hearing and the the hearing officer would be like, do you want this business in your area? And they're like, please, like this guy wants to put $3 million into our block. Like we need to be revitalized since the pandemic. Like what? Like literally, they're like literally telling them like, what is the whole? Yes, please yeah, give him like, a why license. Why is it taking like, so long? And here we are a month later, still nothing, you know, but is it just that we're in a backlog of paperwork somewhere? Maybe. We'll put out some positive vibes for the city of Denver. I know that you're not going to let, you know, the foot off the gas and keep being the professional and like friendly and welcoming person that you are. And so I I know it's hard, but I appreciate the transparency, obviously, in this conversation. And that's really what I try to highlight is just the realities. It's like, yes, you can like sit in your chair and think, oh, I want to do this one day. But what are the actual steps that's going to take you from going from idea to actually opening your doors? And it's not always smoking joints or bong rips. And sometimes those are things that happen in between both um, to celebrate the wins and also to, you know, commiserate with the lows. But it's Mm. this journey of navigating through the realities of entering into a new chapter for an industry that is being very disruptive for multiple reasons, right? And so kind of transitioning a little bit into Las Vegas, which I thought was interesting when you brought up the smoking room in Denver International Airport, because I distinctly remember that Las Vegas also has an indoor thing at their airport. Not to mention, obviously, you can smoke cigarettes in the casino. Cigarettes. 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 Still, like people are doing that. Sorry if you're a cigarette smoker. I was once upon a time, but me we, too, once upon a time. We kicked that habit. So I think we yeah. know more or less like what it can smell like. And obviously, what cannabis is not anywhere close to. Has Las Vegas been any easier? I mean, when you're talking about hospitality, I'm shocked that Las Vegas isn't calling you hospitality because they're literally the city of hospitality. Like, what the I, fuck? But, I've been in city council in Las Vegas several times now to, to, to just give input and help and, you know, talking to the mayor and different things. And I, I in all sincerity, I, I had this moment the last time we were there where one of the city councilmen was talking about cannabis and just like marijuana and like the, just like, these lounges and being like, it's, it's like they're the way they're talking about it is just like, we don't want to do this. Like this is morally wrong, but like we're doing it because it's been made legal. And I'm just sitting there being like, prostitution is legal here. Gambling is legal here. Like you draw the line at smoking some weed. I, where is the high horse that you're sitting on that I cannot see? Because I'm really confused about this. Well, it's I feel crazy. that Vegas in particular, which I was recently rewatching some documentaries on the mob history and the monopoly oh, of Vegas, right? From the things that I've heard, obviously, MJ Biz is in Vegas every year. It's a very big hub, not just for cannabis tourism, but for the industry to come together and kind of have our, you know, professional and, and personal hurrahs. But Vegas is the queen of hospitality. And so to me, when you have legalized cannabis, it's a no brainer. But some of the things that I've heard and observed is they're not going to allow them to be on the strip. I think because there is just some, again, monopoly between the history of Vegas and obviously alcohol conflicting. And so it's like, 
to your point, they're like, I guess we'll have it, but not over here. It's got to be over here. And so they're creating very specific rules for it, which is hard for me to kind of understand because it's like we embrace it, but only because we have to. And so we're going to put it in this box in this, you know, back street, back corner. So you could, you could be on the strip, strip to be clear. Okay. You can, okay. you just have to be 1500 feet from gaming. So like if there's an area at either end of the strip or there's some large gap in the strip that was 1500 feet in every direction away, you could. So like, for example, where I was originally hoping to be, but looks like will not be working out was like near area 15, which is like right next to the strip. Yes. Okay. So that area obviously is like strip adjacent, but I guess to your point, it's like you can, but good luck finding it like on the strip. Like you're just not going to really see something. I forget what hotel I was in. There was some hotel I was in that they were selling, but it was very off strip. I think it was Resorts World actually had Mm. a cannabis dispensary to some extent inside of it if I'm not butchering that. I'm sure someone will tell me if I'm misspeaking. I'm sure it was something just within the rules of like, it can only be this far or maybe we can only sell these certain products. And so just is very wild to me. And I pulled up some of the Las Vegas details just for fodder. So Las Vegas has a total of 40 provisional licenses, 20 are tied to retail dispensaries, and the rest are independent lounges with no dispensaries. Of those, 10 are social equity licenses. So there's 40 licenses in all of Las Vegas. No alcohol can be sold. There must be a thousand foot buffer between consumption lounges, which many advocates and operators say is overly restrictive. There also must be a 300 foot buffer between lounges and city parks, places of worship, family group care service providers, and public recreation facilities. They're prohibited from locating within 1,500 feet of non-restrictive gaming establishments and cannot set up operations inside the city's casino, resort, or medical districts. Smoking and swimming edibles outdoors is allowed. And it was a $10,000 fee for lounge operators and a semi-annual license fee not exceeding 3% of gross revenue. So from a licensing perspective, I think that's a pretty reasonable fee to be paying. I'm just mm. curious, what like what did that compare with like Colorado's fee? And of those kind of like guidelines, is that mirror pretty similar? Obviously not the gambling stuff, but pretty similar to like what Colorado's restrictions are. Like, are you... The question is like, are you finding that they're both equally challenging in their own way or are they very different? Is it like, oh, well, Las Vegas is asking us to do X, Y, and Z and Denver is asking us to do A, B, C and they don't meet in the middle. And so like would Cirrus in both places be a completely different build, setup, entry into the market or is it pretty similar for you to be navigating both at the same time? They both take and get, it it (laughs) definitely levels out like opportunity, 100%. The rules of distance requirements are pretty similar. There, there's different nuances, right? Like in Denver, we decided to not sell weed, but rather to partner with dispensaries because of the limitations of purchasable cannabis and 280E and all kinds of different things and just it not being worth it. In Vegas, we would sell weed. However, there is a rule. And I think this is the everybody's so concerned about the thousand foot rule. There's exceptions. They will allow, they will approve. So I'm not too worried about that. Okay. What I'm worried about is this whole situation of you, if you own a lounge, You have to buy all of your product for resale from a dispensary. No wholesale anything from any growers, any product makers. You have to buy at cost from a dispensary. Exactly. And if that's not giving mob mafia, I don't know what is. Yeah. So there's just different like weird, unique landscapes to both scenarios. But I think Cirrus will look the same visually in both places. But I think in Las Vegas, if we can get there, knock on wood, we've had a treacherous time. I had a partnership that literally fell through yesterday because someone offered them a higher amount of money up front, but there's no way that it will be worth more than Cirrus in the long run. So it's a worse deal in my opinion. So we're we're working on some other stuffs now for in a deadline that is 10 days away. You know, I have 10 days to wrap up these deals and submit. So that's that's pretty nerve wracking. But If we were in Vegas, I think it would be bigger than Colorado. I think it would include entertainment. So like maybe some sort of stage. And I think we we also want to have a dessert buffet in in Vegas because I think you have to have some sort of all-inclusive sort of food situation that people would love. So like a stoner dessert buffet sounds Sounds really fun. Yeah, I'm already there. Yeah. So and it's other food too, but a big old all-you-can-eat dessert buffet sounds really great. So I think, yeah, we would sell weed there and we wouldn't in Colorado. I think that's the main difference. Understood. Yes. I have read up a little bit on some of those nuances, even just State to state, one of my recent guests is from New York and they were saying something around like retail licenses. You get a retail license, but you can't retail your own product. So you can be a retailer, but you have to, I think in their case, obviously you can wholesale. So it wasn't like such a financial, you know, hit, but 
that's really fucked up that you can't wholesale buy. Does that get influenced by, I'm sure, like you were joking, these ties to Vegas? Like, do they, when you go to these city council meetings, like, are they very receptive? Are they like, yes, like, tell us what we don't know? Are they like, we've already made a decision. This is it. You better get on board. There is this aspect, and I and, and I want to say this to anyone listening with the most respect in the world, okay? It's like a dual thing. You've got the cannabis industry yelling at, and this is everywhere to yes. me. You've got the cannabis industry yelling at regulators. We want this. We want this. We want this. And there's understandable reasons why they want those things. And then you've got the government who comes back and sometimes it's like way off base and they're just like, too bad, get over it. But usually they're like, hey, this is how this works. Like you, you don't just get to be handed your whole business for free because we have social equity provisions. You still have to come up with a business and work on that business and open it. It is not our job as a government to hand you the keys to the kingdom for free. So that is definitely, there's like a back and forth a lot in this industry where people are like, but we want this and we want to, we want to lose all these regulations and all these things. And then I understand the government coming in and being like, well, this is how it works for every other industry. It's not special. And you have, we have to, there's, it's not a common ground, you know? No, that's a great point. And I think that that is something that a lot of people get really frustrated with, with the industry. I mean, especially being in Texas, they just want legalization tomorrow. And I'm like, well, what are you legalizing? And and who's the operator? And how are they growing? And if you have no regulations, ultimately, we sell products to consumers and consumer safety should be at the forefront of everybody operating in the industry. But unfortunately, there's just a lot of people who just see the green dollar signs in their eyes. And so I try to make that space in the podcast for obviously, there's going to be people who just want to make a quick buck and profit off of, you know, the industry blowing up. But there should really be people hopefully listening who have more heart and passion and want to endure the hardships to hopefully come out the other side with some sort of success because they've worked through helping pave the way for the industry and not just profiting off of a loophole or just a quick win because it's fun and sexy to sell cannabis. It's like, I love what I do, but it's so much work. And for every, you know, PR, press, it's like, oh my God, you look like you're doing great. I'm like, yes. And also crying at the end of the day because we are currently in session right now. There's legislation that's very anti what we're doing. And it's like, that's just the reality of business. And so you can't get in it thinking, like I say that because people for sure fucking doing it, but you shouldn't get in it thinking, oh my gosh, I'm just going to do this for a quick opportunity. It really should be, okay, well, not just how do I be part of the industry, but I think also how do you be proactive, like not just reactive to these rules and regulations, which I really admire again about you is you're not just kind of taking in and being like, okay, well, this is what the law is, or this is what these regulators are saying. You're actually doing work to say, okay, hey, I'm trying to understand what you're asking of me. I'm also trying to be a good steward. I'm trying to be professional. I'm trying to like earn my seat at the table, not just demand a seat at the table. I think that's what's really missing for a lot of these operators. And so I just really want to give you a lot of kudos because I know it's not easy and I know that you're trying to do it the right way. And it's not always, I guess, appreciated in that respect sometimes, because Mm. as an industry, we do just think, legalize it now and let everybody just have weed. And it's like, that's just not how it's going to work for the reason you express from the government's perspective. Like there has to be some balance to it all. And so with that said, you are just, in my opinion, doing all the right things. Like I said, I know it's super challenging at times, but it's been really fun to watch your journey and to know you and to just be cheering you on and to get to experience a little bit of your serious hospitality. We I hope really you had fun, it, but yes, I hope yes. you had fun. Aaron invited me to, it was right before I went on stage and I took a fat bong rip and I ended up having a really good panel discussion, which I don't normally consume before I public speak. I just am a little, you know, woo-woo. I'm like, I just don't want to have anything crowding or clouding my brain. Um, but it was delightful. Everything was like to the nines. And I just know when you open Cirrus's doors in Colorado and wherever you end up, it's going to be nothing but delicious from, you know, the eyes to the ears, to the mouth, to the feel, to the look, to everything. And yeah, I just love to like open it up for you. Any final thoughts or anything that you didn't mention that you're really excited about? Or I know you said, you know, kind of 10 days to deal with some stuff in Vegas, but yeah, I think thank you for the kind words about being someone who's trying to like show up at the table as well in this industry. And and I would say I would love to take this opportunity to give this advice to as we go forward in this country, especially legalizing hospitality, it's going to continue to be a social equity heavy industry. And I think that that's wonderful. But what I would give advice to as a social equity applicant myself and other people doing social equity stuff, when you get these licenses and when we have these opportunities, don't come into the room 
and demand, hey, this is what it be, should be because it's easier. You have to come in and look at the full scope of the government's picture, of the citizen's picture, of everyone's picture, because you're not going to get anyone to listen to anything you have to say until you understand where they're coming from, because the best deals that are going to be made are not comfortable for you or them. And just walking into the room and being like, I demand this, I demand this, no compromise, we're not going to end up anywhere useful for anyone. So you have to, you know, when I was in Vegas and the cannabis industry is sitting there pleading to get rid of the thousand foot requirements and the the city council saying, this is what it is for everywhere. We will allow you provisions to get an exclusion of that. And we're doing that. That's it. And then a resident of the area that they want to do it in gets up and says, I've lived here for 30 years. I don't want this area to become this. Are we being considerate of everything that's being said or are we just really in it for ourselves? Because you've got to convince that doll right there that's concerned about her area too. You got to get her on board. And there's just a whole lot of, you know, people who are getting these licenses in in these raffles and they show up and just expect things to be handed to them. No, you're being handed an opportunity that still requires you to get investment, get partners. You still have to pay the fees. You still have to show up. It's a foot in the door. It does not open the door for you. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.